James chapter 1. And this morning we'll learn the very first practical and real lesson from James as this letter is full of them. This morning we'll see him teach us the attitude that we should have when we face trials and the results that come from those times in life when our faith is tested. There's a story one day, uh, a man who saw a butterfly struggling to emerge from its cocoon. There was only a small opening in the cocoon. It was too small for the butterfly to squeeze through, but it sure was trying. It was pushing and fighting until finally it just stopped. It was just resting, but the man wanted to help. And so he took a little knife and made the cut in the cocoon a little bit bigger so that the butterfly could easily escape. And when the butterfly crawled out, the man expected to see some beautiful wings as this creature took flight. But to his surprise, the butterfly's body was swollen and its wings were shriveled. And sadly, it was never strong enough to fly. I want to read verse 2 through 8 in James chapter 1 this morning, and we'll focus, though, on verse 2 through 4, and Lord willing, next week, finish this uh, thought up more so with verse 5 through 8. But verse 2 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. James began the bulk of the letter in verse 2, uh, as he says, my brethren, and he calls them this, this becomes his favorite way of addressing his audience during, during his letter. Around 15 times he's going to say, my brothers. And it, it should remind these Jewish Christians that he's writing to of their relationship with one another, first of all, that they're brothers and sisters in Christ. Same relationship we have with each other. We're brothers and sisters in Christ because we have faith in Jesus. And so there's that bond there. But another thing this should do for us as we, as we see this is that it should remind us that James is speaking to Christians. That almost seems obvious, but we need to remember that because one author says what James has to say applies only to born-again Christians. We know that. We know this letter was written to Jewish Christians. But we need that reminder because there are some things that James says that is completely contrary to the ideas of the lost world. There are some commands he gives, some prohibitions he offers that make no sense to a lost man. But the command that we just read and that we'll look at today to consider trials pure joy even though it would seem preposterous to this world, it should make sense to you. And it should be and is something that you can do because you're a believer. You have God's Holy Spirit living within you. And so you should have a different perspective, a better perspective, a deeper outlook on life than a lost man. But James knows that even though we are believers... 
He assumes and even expects that we will still face trying times. Did you notice he didn't use the word if there, if you fall into trials? But he used the word when. Boy, if would have sounded a lot better than to us, wouldn't it? But we know that's not how life is. I don't want to be the one to stand up here and shatter your expectations. But Christians do not live in a spiritual bubble that keeps bad things from happening to them. We don't have some sort of spiritual force field that ensures that we won't face trying times. We may be born again children of God, but we still live in this cursed world. And it's not that we go looking for tough times, but sometimes trials in life just have a way of finding you and even encircling you and surrounding you and even surprising you. This word fall into, other translations you may have say uh, meet or encounter, it's an interesting word. It's only used two other times in the New Testament. Once it was used in Acts chapter 27, and it described some unknown dangerous sailing conditions that the sailors didn't know about. Some, it's, it's, it's a little difficult. Some either undercurrent under the water or a sandbar they were unaware of, and they just fell into the ground. They, they just had a shipwreck. They weren't looking for a shipwreck. It just, just happened. They were unaware of it. The other time this uh, word was used is when Jesus told his famous parable of the Good Samaritan. And he says that a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. It's the same word used here. Just like the sailors weren't looking for a shipwreck, the man in the parable wasn't looking to get mugged and beaten and left for dead. It just happened. He just fell into this. He was surrounded and surprised. And that's how life is, isn't it? Sometimes you're sailing along and the current changes. Sometimes you're walking along, minding your own business, and you're surrounded. And you're totally surprised. Something you never thought you would face. James knows that even Christians will fall into times like this. His audience that he's writing to had already fallen into the trial of persecution. That's why they're scattered. But James isn't limiting this to religious persecution. He uses this word diverse. It means that trials come in different shapes and sizes. There are various types of trials. Sure, suffering as a Christian... Uh, suffering persecution because of, of those beliefs definitely falls under this umbrella. But that's not the only trial in life. Sometimes God's children face the same problems lost people do because we live in this world. Christians are not immune to family problems. They're not immune to financial difficulties, unemployment, death of a loved one, car accidents, Unfair diagnoses, major surgeries, chronic pain, tragedies, you name it. We know that's true all too well even within our church. I'd venture to say that just about everyone here has faced a trial in his or her life. And if you haven't, just wait around. It's not if, but it's when. It's the way life is. It happens. King James translates the word that describes these times with the word temptations there at the end of verse 2. Other translations use the word trials. And the reason for that difference in the modern translations is that 
our word temptation carries such a negative aspect only. When we think of the word temptation, we think of someone tempting you to do something wrong. And this word can have that idea to it, but that's not the only aspect of this word. This, this Greek word also carries a positive aspect of what we would say testing. It can refer to testing something or someone to find out how genuine it is. We might say to, to find out what you're made out of. And so it could kind of fall in either direction. So I like the word trials here because when we think of our word trials nowadays, a trial could either strengthen someone or it could weaken them. And it all depends on how you respond to it. What makes a trial a temptation versus a test? It's how you respond to it. What your attitude is during that trial. The very same circumstance that might discourage and depress one person could actually end up encouraging and deepening the faith of someone else. The trial is the same, but these two people face it differently. They respond differently. And it has very much uh, a lot to do with attitude. I saw a motivational quote recently. I don't remember where I saw it at, but it said, attitude is everything, so pick a good one. That really isn't too far from James's command about the attitude that we should have during trials. He commands us to count it all joy. And the word count is really interesting. In a strict physical sense, it means to lead someone around. It means to lead out. Most of the time in the New Testament, it's used metaphorically of our minds. So the idea would be, make this the leading thought in your mind. Make this the prevailing thought, the, the major opinion. This is your view, your way of thinking. Lead out in your mind that when you face a trial, this is joy. I will be joyful about this. Complete joy, total joy, pure joy, nothing but joy. Not joy mixed with a little bit of grief. Not joy mixed with some self-pity. That's hard, isn't it? All joy. How backwards is that from the philosophy of this world and what this world would tell you to do when you face a trial? To complain and wallow in self-pity and post your graps on Facebook and become angry that this happened and etc. But James commands Christians to do something totally different. He's not offering a suggestion. This is not a self-help tip. It is an inspired command that God has given His children. And so if we face a trial without considering it pure joy, we are disobeying God. This is a command. And sometimes the command, though, is misinterpreted, kind of misunderstood. James is not commanding us to be sadists. That is to be people who enjoy pain. He's not teaching that trials are fun. He's not trying to downplay their difficulty. He's not trying to say, uh, make some mind trick that, well, if you just think about it in a good way, it'll go away. It's not anything like that. He's not pretending that they're not real or that bad things don't really happen. The trial itself is not what creates the joy. The reason we can consider falling into a trial as pure joy is found in verse 3, which we'll talk more about in a minute. 
It comes from the knowledge that God can use the trial for our growth. That's where the joy comes from. Not from the trial, but from the knowledge of what God can do with it. That's what joy actually is anyway when we think about it. Joy is not the fleeting and fickle happiness that's determined by your circumstances. Happiness is a good thing. I'm a fan of it. Don't get me wrong. But it's tied to, your, to this physical world in the sense that it can change like the weather. If the Razorbacks win, if they ever do, I'm happy. If they lose, I'm sad. A lot of sadness last year. It's fickle. Joy's not like that. Joy is a product of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Paul listed it as the second fruit in Galatians chapter 5 when he gave this list of the fruit of the Spirit. And he said the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So true biblical godly joy is not based on physical circumstances or fleshly emotions, but it comes from God's Spirit working in your life. It's based on spiritual things. Throughout the New Testament, when God is at work, there's joy. When God's will is being accomplished, there's joy. Do you remember what the angels told the shepherds when Jesus was born? I bring you good tidings of great what? Joy. Was the birth of Christ not God at work? And there's joy in that. Jesus said there's joy when one sinner repents. That's God at work convicting that person, and they respond, and there's joy when that happens. In Acts chapter 8, there was a city that heard the gospel and believed and saw some miraculous signs, and we're told there was joy in that city. When God's plan is unfolding, when His will is being accomplished, when He is working in your life, that is reason for joy. And part of God's will and part of His work in our lives is to mature us and grow us. He wants us to grow up. And when we realize that God can use physical trials to grow our spiritual life and that He can work even in those things and in spite of those things, then our entire attitude concerning trials should change. Didn't we see that a, a few months ago uh, when we had the sermon in 2 Corinthians 12 about the Apostle Paul and he faced some sort of trial that he, he called uh, the thorn in his flesh. And he prayed three times for God to remove that trial. And God said, no, but my grace is sufficient. And so Paul learned that God's strength was made perfect in his weakness. And so he decided that he would actually brag about his weaknesses instead of complaining about them or asking for them to be removed because that's when the power of Christ more completely rested upon him. James's words aren't identical to Paul, but they're parallel. They're teaching a similar truth here. When we fall into a trial, we must consider it pure joy, not because trials are fun, but because we know that God can use that tough time to grow us and mature us and develop us. 
A trial does not mean the absence of God. It doesn't mean he's not working in your life. The exact opposite is true. If God is working in our lives, then shouldn't that be joyful? If God is at work in you, shouldn't that be a joyful thing? That's what verse 3 is all about. James explains how God works in our lives during trials. He explains what's developed. And I love verse 3 because we're not left wondering why we need to consider trials joyfully. He gives us exactly the reason. A joyful attitude stems directly from the knowledge that God can use the trials for our benefit. Look at verse 3 again. He says, knowing this, or even because you know, because you know that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Joy doesn't come from the trial, but from the knowledge of what God can do with it. The knowledge that James is referring to here at the beginning of the verse, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's a knowledge gained through experience. So think about this for a minute. James is telling these believers that they already have experiential knowledge of how God works through trials. They have already seen their lives grow and, and become more mature throughout other trials in their life. The past experiences should color the future. If God strengthened you once, do you not think he would do it again? If you learned something because of one trial, do you not think God could teach you something in another? If your faith grew last time, do you not think it would grow again? And that's what James is telling these people. You know this experientially. And so the leading thought in your mind needs to be joy. Trials allow God another opportunity to test you and grow you. And that's the idea of the word trying there. Uh, trying of your faith. The word trying, it means testing. It referred to a word that they used uh, in the first century to determine how pure a metal was. They put it to the test to see how genuine it was, see how strong it was, and all those things. Why are trials considered tests for your faith? He specifically says it, testing of your faith. I think it's because often during trials, people's faith is quite literally tested because we question God. We doubt God. We second-guess God. God, if you really loved me, then why am I facing this? And sadly, some people let their doubts win. And the trial turns into the temptation. And they become bitter. Perhaps they even stop serving God altogether. But thankfully, some people follow James's command and they have a joyful attitude because they understand how God can use this trial. And that turns out to be a test of the genuineness of their faith. It proves the authenticity of their faith and it grows and produces something. He says the testing or trying of your faith works patience. It produces that. 
When you see the word patience here, don't think of, of patience the way we use it today. It's not some passive waiting around, you know, checking your watch to see when the trial is going to be over. Some of you have translations that maybe say steadfastness or endurance or perseverance. That's what's produced when you face a trial joyfully. It gives the picture, this word, of someone who is under a heavy load, but he is resolute and unwavering instead of looking for a way out or crumbling up under the load. It literally means uh, to remain under something. A lot of times that's what we need when we face a trial, right? Is the strength, the endurance, the perseverance to remain uh, the person God wants us to be and even grow during the trial. That sort of strong and courageous endurance cannot be produced without some pressure, without some testing, without some struggle. But as wonderful as the endurance is, it's not the ultimate goal. It's not the end result. In verse 4, James seems to kind of skip forward to maybe a time when the trial's over, or at least definitely a time when the endurance has been produced. Maybe the trial's still going on, but the endurance has been manufactured. But God hadn't stopped working yet. Notice he says, But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. This is actually another command that James gives. He commands us to let this endurance that the test has produced to finish what it started. That's the way we would say it. Let this perseverance uh, have complete work. Don't muzzle it. Don't muffle it. Let it keep working in your life so that it can be perfect. The word perfect there, both places actually in verse 4, it has nothing to do with sinless perfection, but it means something that's brought to completion or maturity. So when this steadfastness that a trial can produce when our faith is tested, when it's allowed to finish its work, it leads to a mature Christian. That's the end result. That's the ultimate goal. The endurance is part of that, but it doesn't stop just there. James specifically says here that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Again, the word perfect doesn't mean sinless, but it means complete, mature. It was a word when it was used of animals or people, it, it referred to adulthood as opposed to a baby or an immature child. This was someone who was a well-rounded, full-grown, complete, mature adult, wanting nothing. That means being in need of nothing, lacking nothing essential of being an adult. Don't parents want that for their children, just earthly parents? We want our, our children to be well-rounded and mature and well-adjusted in all areas of life, not just one. Have you ever heard a mother say, I sure hope my daughter does well in college, but I don't care if she has a good marriage or not? What? Have you ever heard a father say, as long as my son has a good work ethic, I don't care if he's a liar or not? 
What? No, we want our children to be complete and well-rounded and mature in all areas and aspects of life. And God wants His children to be complete and well-rounded spiritual adults. And it takes testing in order for that to happen. Just like a child doesn't grow up without some growing pains, the Christian does not mature without some trials, without some struggles. And we live in a world full of them, don't we? We live in a world full of trials that we fall into from time to time. But thank God that He is so powerful that He can actually use those trials for our ultimate good and for His purposes. Because if He couldn't, I guess we'd be in all sorts of pro- have all sorts of problems. Number one, it would mean there are things in this universe stronger than God. But if God couldn't use a trial for our benefit, then all they would be would be tough times. Just be a terrible situation you got to get through. And if it ever ended, you'd say, what was the point of that? And the answer would be nothing. But that's not the way it is. God is so amazing and powerful that He can use the struggle as a strengthening tool. That's exactly how he created the butterfly. The struggle of the butterfly to break free of its cocoon is exactly what God designed to finish shaping that butterfly's body and strengthening its wings so it could fly once it breaks free. And so that's why in the story, the butterfly couldn't take flight. Because the man, even though he was trying to help, he removed the struggle. He took away the trial, and so the butterfly wasn't strong enough. The struggle is necessary. It's the very thing that makes it strong enough to fly. And God can do the same thing and the same work in our lives. If we will follow James's command to consider trials joyfully, not because they're fun, but because we know what God can do with them, then the end result will be our strengthening, our growth, our maturity, being able to do things we could not do before, serving God in ways we never thought we could, standing strong during times that we thought we would buckle under, and being a mature child of God. That's what God wants for His children. And it should be what we want for ourselves and for each other, to mature into the people who are better servants for Him, better witnesses for Him. But we're going to need His help to do that, aren't we? It's not an easy thing. And so James, in the verses we'll look at next week, Lord will, and is going to talk about what to do if you lack something. If you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior... You need to make that decision today as the Holy Spirit convicts. You're not on any journey to spiritual maturity at all until you trust Christ as your Savior. In fact, Jesus is actually the ultimate example of the benefits that can come through suffering. He was holy, innocent, righteous, good, and yet... He gave his life for you and for me and went through the suffering and death that he did 
because he knew the benefit that others would receive from it. If you've never trusted in him, we're praying for you this morning to repent and believe. If you would stand, let's bow for a word of prayer as we prepare for an invitation. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, these verses are not hard to understand, but they're not easy. We need your help. If there's someone here today going through a trial, Lord, help them to have the wisdom to consider it joyfully and work in their life and produce endurance and grow them and, and all of us. The next time we face a trial, Lord, help us to remember these verses. God, we thank you so much for Jesus and the example that he set for us and the life that we have through him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.